ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. And surprise, surprise, we have a very nice grab bag of ETF topics to get into, including ARC naming Brett Winton as Chief Futurist last week. Now, I feel like I've seen that uh, title somewhere before. I can't put my finger on it. Uh, maybe somebody at Vetify. But there's been at least uh, some chatter over the past year or so regarding a potential succession plan for Kathy Wood. And it looks like maybe this announcement is putting those wheels into motion. So Laura and I will discuss that and also just talk about ARC's year in general. We'll also look at this new inverse blockchain ETF that came out last week uh, from Defiance. This offers daily inverse exposure to the Amplified Transformational Data Sharing ETF ticker, BLOCK, B-L-O-K, which, by the way, that's down nearly 45% year-to-date. So interesting timing with this launch. And incidentally, I believe this is only like the third or fourth ETF that shorts another ETF. And, of course, one that's had a lot of success is the uh, Access Short Innovation Daily ETF, ticker SARC, which actually shorts the uh, ARC Innovation ETF. But in any event, Laura and I will uh, offer a few thoughts on this new inverse blockchain ETF and also just take a look at the uh, blockchain ETF space overall. And then lastly, we are going to spotlight an ETF that's absolutely vacuumed up investor dollars this year, about $8 billion to be exact, and it's gone from zero to nearly $13 billion in assets in just over two years. I'm going to bet even some of you uh, ETF nerds don't know what this is. So we'll tell you about that ETF here in just a bit. I'll then be joined by Michael Green, Portfolio Manager and Chief Strategist at Simplify Asset Management. 
And I'm guessing many of you are already familiar with Michael. He's a great follow out on Twitter. He's certainly out in the financial media and those sorts of things. But you look at his background. I mean, Michael managed macro strategies at Teal Macro, which is an investment firm that handles the personal capital of Peter Teal. Prior to that, he founded Ice Farm Capital, which is a uh, discretionary global macro hedge fund seeded by Soros Fund Management. He also founded and managed the New York office of Canyon Capital Advisors, which is a $23 billion multi-strategy hedge fund. Uh, I I could go on. A number of impressive professional accomplishments. But now he's the portfolio manager for the Simplified Macro Strategy ETF, which just launched back in May. And we're going to get into quite some depth on this ETF. I'll tell you now, it's pretty interesting. I'm going to let Michael cover the details, but I'll crudely describe this as a significantly souped-up asset allocation ETF that is seeking to improve on a traditional 60-40 portfolio. I would say Michael believes the game has changed here, that a 60-40 portfolio is going to present some real challenges moving forward. And of course, we've already seen some of that this year. So again, we'll get into the details of that ETF. And I also want to get Michael's uh, overall thoughts on portfolio construction in the current markets. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with Vetify's Laura Krigger. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, thanks for joining me this week. Great having you back on the podcast. Always glad to be here. Thank you. All right. So before we get to our uh, our grab bag of topics, I would be remiss if I didn't mention something that Vetify actually flagged yesterday, which is a big milestone for ETFs. So there are now over 3,000 ETFs trading uh, across that mark, I believe, on Friday. And I'm just curious, as someone who has been involved with the ETF industry for quite a while now, what are your thoughts on this uh, on this milestone? I think it's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> so uh, let's uh, let's copy out the news by saying that it's uh, three thousand ETFs that are actively trading, uh, which is different than three thousand have launched, right? Um, because there are many more that have launched and then subsequently closed. That's just the nature of the business. It's expensive to run an ETF, and not every ETF hits a sustainable level. But that said, it's kind of been wild to see how quickly the ETF industry has grown, especially in the last two years. Since I've been part of it, the industry has grown in fits and starts. You know, there's been some good years where lots of products launch and then some bad years where many close. Um, But just in the past two years, it's been a Cambrian explosion of ETFs. I'd even say in the last couple of months since single stock ETFs have launched, right? And that's all kind of, you know, it comes back to late 2019 when the ETF rule passed, the SEC made it easier, cheaper for anybody to get into the ETF market. And when you make it easier and you make it cheaper to launch ETFs, more people are going to launch ETFs. So I, I think that that is the main impetus and continues to be the main impetus as to why we're seeing so many funds launch now. 
and why uh, many of the ETFs that may have otherwise closed because they couldn't get enough assets after a certain point, why they have been staying uh, around a little bit longer. All excellent points. You know, it's interesting because as we look towards the end of the year, I mean, I wonder how quickly are we going to hit 4,000 or 5,000? You mentioned single stock ETFs. We could be crossing another milestone in in fairly short order. Uh, but I, I uh, you may have seen this. I tweeted this out yesterday. So 10 years ago, there were only 1,200 or so ETFs on the market. 20 years ago, just a little over 100. So it, it shows you how far we've come. It, it's uh, remarkable. Um, okay, let's get to uh, our grab bag of topics here. And I want to start with uh, these two noteworthy stories in the ETF world last week. And the first one, I know we talk a lot about uh, ARC on the podcast. I just find them to be such a fascinating case study. I, I mean, you think about this. They've been to the top of the mountain. They've uh, traveled into the, the, the depths of the valley. They've truly experienced it all over the past few years. But I think one thing that's clear is uh, they're here to stay. And we can talk more about why I think that is. I, I know you agree. But on that note, last week they issued a press release where they named Brett Winton, who was ARC's director of research, they named him to the role of chief futurist. And yes, mm-hmm. I did think of your colleague, Dave Nodig. He absolutely <laughs> deserves some credit here. Uh, he's the first person I ever saw with futurist in his title. He's financial futurist. But uh, there were some rumblings that maybe uh, Brett is being groomed as a successor to Kathy Wood. And so the first question that I have for you is, we, we don't know if that's actually the case, right? But mm-hmm. do you think ARC is now in a strong enough position where... They no longer need the star power of Kathy Wood. In other words, do you think they've grown to a point where the ARC brand stands on its own, which I would view as a, a, a tremendous accomplishment for Kathy Wood? I, I think it has. And genuinely, I don't think that Kathy Wood is as much of a household name as uh, we in the FinTwit circles or, or the media circles would like to believe. I think ARC kind of stands on its own. Now, there's a, a, a devoted uh, fan base that she has, a lot of detractors and naysayers. But to the extent that she, her personality, her comments or whatever, influencing flows in and out of the ARC suite, maybe that was true 10 years ago. But I think you'd be hard-pressed to make that argument now. Um, I think you know she's been put into the spotlight uh, partly because she makes a very compelling um, figurehead, for sure. But part of it, too, is that she's an outspoken woman who speaks with conviction and that's, uh, you know, draws out a certain crowd, right, who want nothing more than to you know, tear that down. So, um, you know, I, I think if she were some bald white guy named Bob, she never would have become the favorite hero or villain of the story, uh, depending on your perspective. So to the point you made about Brett, yeah, I mean, chief futurist. Kind of partial to the title. I love it a little bit, you know, a little biased here for sure. Um, But if you look at, you just spend five minutes, 10 minutes poking around the vast library of research that the ARC team has available for free on their website, the newsletters that they're producing, the white papers, you'll see that ARC really isn't just the Kathy Wood show or, you know, the Brett Winton show in the future. It's a team of deeply knowledgeable and well-sourced experts who are often spotting trends before they become market-shifting events. And so if you want to see why or if you want to understand why ARC has the devoted fan base that they do, 
I don't think you look to Kathy Wood. I think you look to the white papers that they are putting out and you look to, um, you know, just the conviction with which the whole team, the whole company um, puts into their into their investment uh, choices. Well, and to your point on the bench that they've developed, what's interesting to me is they've gone outside of the traditional asset management uh, space to find some of those individuals who they brought on board. And, and to your point on, uh, on on the hypothetical Bob, you know, they've had some rocks thrown their way because people feel like they've hired people from other disciplines, not asset management. Kathy, though, views that as a real benefit, that she's bringing a diversity of thought into the room. And, you know, one of the reasons they can think outside the box. But um, I, I agree. I mean, clearly they're, they're building out a, a bench there, and it'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward. I will mention that Kathy Wood is still a very young 66, and she has given absolutely zero indication she's planning on retiring anytime soon. <laughs> I just want to make that clear. <laughs> There's just been some rumblings, especially with this press release, that you know maybe she is thinking about a succession plan down the road. Let, let me ask you this. Because of the success that ARC has had, uh, especially in 2020, we, we then saw a lot of copycat ETFs launch, both on the active and index-based side. A, a lot of, uh, quote-unquote, disruptive tech ETFs, or whatever you want to call them. Do you think even with that type of competition, ARC has established themselves well enough with or without Kathy? Oh, absolutely. I don't think any of the copycat ETFs, uh, you can just look at the flows, I don't think any of them have quite captured the ARC magic because, in part, their disruptive innovation ETFs are just, I mean, often they're just one ETF that's part of a larger ETF suite, and it's not their specialty. Whereas for ARC, disruptive technology, this cross-sector approach, that's all they do. It's their whole bread and butter. And so that kind of specialization matters when you're trying to spot alpha opportunities in the market that other firms aren't able to spot. So I don't think they have any threat to their throne. Yeah, I think the best thing that Kathy did over the past year and a half was stick to her knitting. Uh, she didn't mm -hmm. waver on her strategy and in her conviction. And so I do think the ARC brand is strong enough to stand on its own because people know exactly what they're going to get with these ETFs. And as long as whoever is uh, captaining the ship moves, you know, moving forward, as long as they do the same, I feel like, to, to your point, the ARC brand is synonymous with disruptive tech. And that's going to find an audience with investors. It'll find an audience with traders who want to make a quick tactical play on the space. And then even short sellers who know that they can count on if they're shorting the space, they're going to get uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the return movements that they would expect because Kathy stuck to what, what she said she was going to do. Um, Laura, I know everyone is uh, well aware of the performance ride that ARCs had, right? They, they, they absolutely did knock the cover off the ball in 2020. And then starting in about February of last year, it's been a tough go. I, I mean, I looked this morning, ARKK, the, the flagship ETF, that's down about 70% since last February and over 50% year to date. And one of the stories I feel like over that time frame, over that past you know year or so, has been that d despite the performance, the ARK lineup as a whole was still taking in net new money. But that's actually changed now. So if you look year to date, uh, the, the flows have now turned negative across the lineup. And in August, ARKK, well, it's still taking in a, about a billion dollars, a little over a billion dollars this year. It actually had its largest monthly outflow since last September. 
And altogether, I show about a little less than $5 billion has come out of the ARC lineup uh, over the past 12 months. Now, again, as we just talked about, I know we both agree ARC's here to stay. They're not going anywhere. But do those flows concern you at all? Is there anything to take away here? Because, again, the narrative had been, despite the performance, investors will, were still putting money to work in the ARC lineup. But, but that does appear to have changed at least somewhat here. So a couple of things. One, ARKK specifically is one of the most traded ETFs on the planet. You know, if the flows look positive, just wait a week, right? And then, or change the time range that you're looking at by a few days, and then it looks negative again. So that's what happens when you have such an extremely liquid fund as ARKK becomes a trading instrument as much as a buy and hold investment. And so the flows kind of, uh, you know, sometimes revert to a mean. So for example, you know, over the past year, we've had hundreds of billions of dollars of ARK shares, of ARKK shares traded, but netted out over the past 12 months, the fund has only gained 10 million in, in new net assets, the million with an M. So, um, you know, it's, it's a very uh, vibrantly traded fund, uh, and uh, that, that is one aspect of it. But, you know, you're right. To, there is a trend of uh, recent outflows, and I think it comes back to, uh, honestly, the inflation and rate environment that we're seeing, right? So 2022 has been a really tough time and really tough environment for growth stocks, whether, you know, whenever you have rates on the rise again, that's going to be tough for growthy startups, like the kind that you find in the ARC portfolios. It's going to be tough for them to find and secure financing at reasonable rates. That's going to impact their ability to deliver return. And you've heard me say this ad infinitum. Now, it's not limited to the ARC product suite, and we've seen double-digit negative returns for all sorts of growth-oriented techie funds. Um, probably a good thing because, you know, valuations were getting a little overheated in 2021, um, especially towards the end. So I think eventually market conditions are going to get to the point folks start to buy again. Um, some investors, I believe, thought that moment was upon us in early August. We started to see the inflation prints coming out um, that were a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit more uh, optimistic, I suppose. Then, you know, the Fed meeting happened and the growth rally fizzled and, and all of that. But it did demonstrate to me that there are advisors and investors who want to allocate and they're just waiting on the sidelines for the right time to get back in. And when they do, ARKK, specifically being the flagship fund, that one's going to benefit the most. Well, and again, I'll come back to what I said earlier, because Kathy Wood and ARK stuck to what they do best and what they have portrayed uh, you know, out to the public. If and when things turn, they're going to be huge beneficiaries here. Exactly. You always know what you're going to get with an ARK fund. You always know what the, um, you know, because they stick to their knitting, they stick to their convictions. Um, there are some uh, other, you know, ETFs out there that, you know, it, it's a little bit more wishy-washy, but, you know, you may not always agree with the calls that ARC is making. You may not always um, think that they were the right ones or that they may not have borne fruit, right? But at least you know what to expect with them. Yeah. And you can see what they're doing every day, by the way. Daily exactly. transparency, all the research is out in public. Introducing Capital Group's new actively managed ETFs, a new suite of ETFs brought to you by a company with a proven track record of long-term results, a 90-year history of navigating ups and downs, and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA.
All right. Uh, let's move on and, and talk about a first in the ETF industry, and that's the first inverse blockchain ETF. It comes <laughs> from uh, Defiance ETFs. It's called the Defiance Daily Short Digitizing the Economy ETF, ticker IBIT, I-B-I-T. So this offers daily inverse exposure to the Amplified Transformational Data Sharing ETF, ticker B-L-O-K, Block. Now, I, I alluded to this at the top. That ETF block is down nearly 45% this year. And you look at the blockchain ETF space as a whole. I mean, that that entire segment has just been obliterated. Some of the worst performing ETFs that are out there. So what do you think about the timing of this inverse blockchain ETF? Uh, is it a little late to the party or, or I guess the, the, the bloodbath here? I think maybe it might have been an even more fortuitous timing to have launched the fund three months ago, rather, or maybe six months ago. So it could, uh, while blockchain was, you know, declining, it could be riding up. But a lot of that stuff is out of the hands of, it's out of anybody's control. So, you know, I have a couple of thoughts on this. One, I kind of expected this a little bit earlier in the life cycle of, uh, you know, the blockchain and Bitcoin um, ecosystem, especially uh, because, you know, well, honestly, we've seen a couple, you mentioned that this was one of those ETFs that takes a base ETF and then offers short exposure on it, uh, inverse exposure. Uh, I kind of expected that to be a little bit more popular of an idea, and it hasn't been so with uh, issuers. Um, you know, Block is the biggest blockchain ETF on the market. Its assets are remarkably sticky right? You pointed out that the fund is down, what, 45, 50% year to date, but net outflows over the same period, it's only 28 million. And so that's barely a blip for the fund, which was over 1 billion in AUM before, you know, the big crypto uh, winter knocked all the, um, you know, the the wind out of its sails. So I, I think uh, IBIT is a really interestingly structured, like all of these ETFs, very uh, interestingly structured fund, um, but it may just be uh, walking into a market uh, at the at the wrong time. To your point on how long this took to come to market, I do wonder whether the SEC was a roadblock here. Uh, you know, mm. we, we all know it's been well documented how skittish the SEC has been around spot ETFs. But even in the blockchain ETF space, I'm sure you recall, I mean, back when the first products launched, they, they couldn't even have blockchain in the name, which is why we have yeah. something called the transformational data sharing ETF. <laughs> but I, I wonder if they were a, a, a hindrance to getting something to market quicker. Let, let me ask you this. What about the construction of this ETF? I know you and I always like to uh, make a point of highlighting some of the risks involved with daily reset ETFs. Do you have any quick comments regarding the actual construction of IBIT? Yeah, sure. So IBIT you know, achieves that short exposure by buying swaps agreements and selling short selling shares of block. And uh, what I think is interesting is that they picked an active ETF, right? So block is actively managed. It's uh, portfolio can change on a weekly, daily basis. And sometimes it does change on a daily basis. That has helped blocks managers mitigate the losses when other index-based uh, blockchain ETFs have been bleeding out. So um, you know, it's important to note that IBIT's not holding the companies that are in block. It's not holding shares of block. It's holding, it's going to the derivatives market to get that exposure. Um, and I have to give the same caveat that I give every time we talk about leveraged and inverse products and that it's, you know, the exposure resets on a daily basis. So 
return can and does often drift from just a pure negative 1x or pure positive 2x multiple on that underlying asset. Trending markets, not too big of a deal, but in sideways or non-trending markets, any tiny little blip in the underlying index or assets, price is going to be amplified in a geared product, which means that the return uh, of that product is going to vary uh, vastly at times from the vanilla version. And so it's going to get um, that return difference is going to increase the longer you hold the fund. So just be careful of what you own and what you won't. Don't forget that you own it. This is not a set and forget instrument. That's yeah. why I brought this up. I knew you would do an excellent job of driving home that point. Very important on daily reset products, uh, in, in this case, an inverse product. Um, Laura, in terms of the uh, the long blockchain ETF space, I, I'm sure you saw this because actually I think you were on uh, Bloom, Bloomberg's uh, ETF IQ, yeah. if I recall correctly. But Bloomberg had a piece that noted there's been nearly 20 blockchain or crypto ETFs that have launched over the past few years. And, and again, you heard me right. The actual number is 18, 18 of these ETFs. <laughs> but uh, this article was written by uh, Katie Greifield, and she noted how BLOK has a correlation of 0.9 or greater with 14 of these 18 ETFs. So in other words, a lot of these own the same underlying holdings, and they're doing a lot of the same things, and you're basically getting the same exposure. My question for you is, how many of these ETFs uh, can survive? The this, this space just seems so oversaturated to me, especially, uh, again, if many of these are going to offer pretty much the same exposure. Gosh, I, you know, honestly, I thought some of them would have closed by now, right? <laughs> the crypt, this crypto winter has not been kind to the space. You're seeing a lot of crypto companies uh, pulling back on marketing budgets. I think eventually, a bloodbath in the ETF space is coming. Um, it has happened before, right? Like we saw a wave of closures in the blockchain ETF uh, land uh, about five or maybe seven years ago. Uh, reality shares hadn't fund they uh, closed and some others closed and so on. So um, you know, it has happened before and it can and probably should happen again. Um, I think maybe there's, it's possible that everybody in ETF land is waiting for someone to blink first. Maybe it's a factor of, um, it's now, uh, you know, the, the ETF rule makes it cheaper to just get into the ETF market. So maybe they have more cash in it. I don't know. I don't know why, but it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. But it's going to be tough sledding. I mean, look, I think BLOK, clearly they've established themselves as the market leader in this space. Yeah. I think they're not going anywhere. But the challenge here is you look at some of the names that have come into this segment of the market. I mean, you have names like iShares and Schwab and Fidelity, big brands that can offer uh, the, the exposure at a very low price point. And, you know, those firms are probably going to stick by those products for, for longer than maybe some of the, the smaller firms out there. It's just I think it's going to be a really tough, uh, you know, hill to climb here for these blockchain ETFs. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if maybe it's the opposite, to be honest, because the smaller companies are a little bit more higher conviction, 
And, and, you know, in some cases, like, for example, Valkyrie, that's all they do is crypto. Um, and so maybe they have the conviction to stick with the ETF versus the bigger companies, which are just, you know, launching ETFs in the crypto space because they have to be in the crypto space. They, they need that sort of exposure in their fund lineup. And, uh, you know, maybe clients were asking for it and, uh, you know, so on. But, um, I mean, I, I wonder. No, I think that's a great point. I mean, I've talked before. You think about a firm like Grayscale, their future finance ETF, or Bitwise. Those firms clearly have crypto street cred. And I do think that that counts for something in this space. And as I think about advisors uh, potentially allocating a small satellite position of this, a thematic play, having that crypto street cred appear on a client statement, I can see how that would be viewed as beneficial. Right. Where maybe the core of your portfolio is the iShares and the Schwabs and the Vanguards, you know, having somebody with that that crypto name brand could could make sense. So I I agree. I think that's a that's a good point. I'm just I'll be fascinated to watch this space because I've been shocked at how many launches there have been in this category. I think because the SEC uh, has been reluctant to approve a spot Bitcoin ETF, obviously, a lot of issuers were looking for an end around. and, And how can they you, you know, can tangentially get exposure uh, to this space. And, and so there was these blockchain ETFs that uh, that was the answer. And so they were all in the lab cooking up yeah. products. And now we have a bunch of uh, I call them Frankenstein uh, crypto ETFs out there. But <laughs> we'll see. All right. Let's close with a little ETF nerd trivia. So there is an ETF out there that's taken in about eight billion dollars this year. And it's gone from zero to nearly 13 billion in assets in just over two years. Now, I'm gonna let you do the honors here. I know you've been tracking this ETF. So tell us what this is, uh, what's been going on. And for the ETF nerds, if you get this right, you get to download next week's podcast for free. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have any good, uh, I don't have any good uh, door prizes. Uh, I, I need to come up with something. And NFT, I've seen some podcasts doing NFTs. But uh, Laura, give us the give us the ETF. All right, drum roll, please. It's actually the JP Morgan Equity Income ETF. That's ticker JEPI, J E P I. And this fund has just been astonishing, uh, an astonishing success story over 2022 specifically really under the radar. Uh, you know, so in July, I noticed um, that Jeppy was kind of leapfrogging over literally hundreds of tickers in our database in terms of how much research it was seeing from investors out there. It went from something like the 200th most popular ETF to the fourth in the span of weeks. And that's in part because Jeppy's yield is just it's it's obscenely good right now, right? It's been that way for a while. Folks are looking for viable income options. They're seeking that income from the equity markets and from the options markets, which is what Jeppy provides. And it, they're still looking for it there, even though uh, bond ETFs are starting to actually provide meaningful income again. If you look at a high yield ETF, though, it's giving you a yield of, what, 7 8% if you're lucky. Jeppy is... Right now, I just checked it last night, it's providing a yield of almost 12%. And when it started to get super popular in the research uh, side of things, um, Jeppy was providing a 14% monthly yield. So I mean, that's pretty juicy, right? So like you said, the ETF has brought in about $8 billion in new net assets, just an astonishing ride. Um, there are a number of ETFs in kind of the same wheelhouse as Jeppy 
that use options strategies like covered calls or buy right strategies or so on to provide income based on some underlying in big, large cap index usually. Uh, But JEPI is consistently providing the highest income of all of them. So um, at the same time, it's not necessarily offering the same downside protection that other ETFs out there offer, but investors clearly do not mind. They're probably sourcing that protection elsewhere in their portfolio. And so they're laser focused on that yield. uh, And I don't see any um, indication that the yield is going to be uh, going away anytime soon. Yeah. And just to add a little color to the ETF itself for people who may not be familiar with JEPI, Basically, this is a uh, defensive equity portfolio, so it's certainly value-focused, targets lower volatility stocks. One difference between this ETF and, say, just a low-vol ETF is they have cap uh, or they cap the sector exposure there. And then then what they're doing, I think kind of the secret sauce is they're writing covered calls on the S&P 500. So these are out of the money. They reset uh, a portion of those on a weekly basis. So it's sort of a, a, a laddered covered call strategy. But, uh, you, you know, a couple other data points I'll throw out here. So JEPI is number 11 in flows year to date out of all ETFs. And you look at the top 10 leaderboard, it's a who's who. It's the, the, the usual suspects in your BOOs and VTIs and those sorts of things. But JEPI's knocking on the door of the top 10, number 11 year to date. This is also now the largest actively managed equity ETF. Again, I think we need to, to reemphasize that. Well, one thing I'm curious about, um, Laura, you know, you look at performance. I talk a lot with your colleague Tom Hendrickson about uh, Betify platform interest. And typically when uh, he has seen spikes in ETFs, you can trace that back to performance as well. And if you look at performance year to date, Jeppy's only down about 4%. SPY, last I checked, was down about 13% after the, uh, the up move yesterday. But have you seen this, uh, this ETF rise to the surface on the Betify platform just in terms of uh, what advisors or, or investors are researching? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jeppy, like I said um, you know, a second ago, it, it has uh, just skyrocketed over the last two months in terms of popularity and research traffic on our platform. Um, it is gone, uh, you know, it, it is now the fourth most researched ETF on yeah, it's just frankly uh, wild to me. You know, it's it's beating out, you know, VTI and uh, you know all the ARC funds and so on. You bring up a really good point about uh, the portfolio of Jeppy, which um, you know isn't just a um, a vanilla um, S and P five hundred exposure, right? Uh, some of these income products out there uh, do just provide, uh, you know, they, they hold the S&P 500 stocks or they hold whatever, you know, index stocks and then write cover calls on top of that. Um, Jeppy is doing a little bit more, right? They're, they're, they're uh, being a little bit more selective in the, uh, the equities that they're choosing uh, or the managers are choosing. And then on top of that, writing the cover call, I should have emphasized that a little bit more earlier. Um, and I think that is what the secret sauce is. Those two things together have helped provide the just outsized income um, that we're seeing for the fund. Well, I want to hear from all of our uh, ETF nerd listeners. How many of you knew which ETF this was this year? I know some (laughs) did, but I'm curious for for those of you who maybe didn't. Uh, Laura, always love having you on the uh, podcast. So much fun this week. A great list of topics. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. 
These days, we're all investors, trying to be smart with our money despite our worst impulses. But at iShares, we believe that deep down inside of every investor is a better investor. One that's just waiting to be let out. Explore iShares ETFs and insights and let your best investor out. Visit iShares.com for more information. I am now joined by Michael Green, Portfolio Manager and Chief Strategist at Simplify Asset Management, who currently offers 21 ETFs, about $1.5 billion in assets, which is pretty remarkable given their first ETFs only launched about two years ago. Uh, they're building out very quickly. And I've said this before, I think Simplify is one of the more intriguing ETF issuers out there because of the way they're approaching the market. I feel like they're truly trying to bring unique products to investors. They're not launching uh, Me Too or cookie cutter products. This is an innovative shop with a very seasoned leadership team, including Michael, who is now on the line with me from New York. Michael, it's an absolute pleasure to connect. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate the invite. All right, so just by way of uh, background, how did you end up partnering with uh, Simplify? I, I mentioned this at the top of the podcast. I think many of our listeners are certainly familiar with you and your professional experience, which is quite impressive. How did you end up aligning with Simplify? Well, Simplify, um, I actually knew Tony Bassowell. He and I had been close friends for well over a decade. He flagged for me in January of 2021 uh, the incredible opportunity that existed um, with the derivative rule change, right? So there was some regulatory framework changes, and you know those who are familiar with my work know that this is something I spend an awful lot of time on. Paul Kim, who is founder of Simplify, was even more in tune with this, recognized that the change in the regulatory framework that was created with what's called the derivative rule in September of 2020 that allows the inclusion or at least allows the systematic and, and uh, formulaic inclusion of derivative strategies within ETFs was a real game changer in terms of allowing ETFs to become hedgy in their expression, right? Um, they actually have advantages versus hedge funds in large part due to sufficient ETF strategies. And Harley highlighted this for me. The minute I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, this is absolutely incredible. This suddenly allows many of the derivative overlay strategies that I've been involved with in the past to move from being peripheral part of the portfolio, competing for 3% allocations of portfolios, to being core components of portfolios. And, you know, so competing for the 40, 50, 60, 70%. And you mentioned in our ETF business, we really have looked at it from the standpoint of how do we build out a suite of products that allow investors to incorporate our strategies and our approaches across their overall portfolio. The objective being to create portfolios that have unique hedging characteristics to them, unique profile characteristics in an environment in which it's becoming increasingly questionable whether you know the Fed put exists, for example, where bonds in the 60-40 type framework might not protect portfolios in the same way. The ability to do that within the tax-efficient wrapper of an ETF just is a real game-changer. And, and I would argue that we're going to end up seeing many hedge fund strategies begin to migrate towards ETFs over time. feels like we've gotten ahead of that curve, and, and we're really fortunate that you know Paul's eyes were open. 
and I'm thrilled to be part of a team that is, in my view, executing better than any I've ever been part of before. All right, so perfect segue here. Now, among other things, you are the portfolio manager on the Simplify Macro Strategy ETF, ticker FIG, F-I-G, which what does that stand for, uh, FIG? It actually doesn't stand for anything, although uh, the, 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 um, w- one of the more fun things about doing ETFs is trying to pick up clever, uh, clever tickers. So we have products like CTA and CYA. Um, and CYA stands for Cover Your Assets, shall we say. Um, CTA is, you know, targeting the commodity trading advisor market. So we've been really fortunate, again, you know, the genius behind individuals like Paul and others who have selected this. My Twitter handle uh, is Professor Plum. And so FIG is literally just a play on Plum. I got it. All right. I love that. All right. So, Michael, I, at the top of the podcast, crudely described this as a uh, significantly souped up asset allocation ETF. I'm going to let you uh, much more eloquently explain the strategy here. This is actively managed by you. Just explain what's going on uh, within this ETF. Sure. So so our core objective is to provide an alternative to a 60-40 bond portfolio and take advantage of all the features of ETFs that I just mentioned. So we choose to access markets in a way that allows us to add a little bit of leverage to that portfolio so we can, while simultaneously putting much less at work, we have the full equity portion of that portfolio. We've chosen alternative income streams. So instead of bonds, or in many cases, instead of bonds, we've chosen um, uh, volatility premium through various simplified products, et cetera. It allows us to run a portfolio that has a significantly protected downside. So, for example, today is a significant outperformance day, while at the same time allowing us to preserve access to the upside participation in markets. So equities, for example, we're taking advantage of the ability to use derivatives we own long-dated in-money call options on in lieu of the 60% of the portfolio, right? I think full performance with as little as 7 to 8% total allocated towards it. I can increase my allocation significantly, but only 60%. In a traditional portfolio, the most I can lose is the premium side of my options. So we're taking advantage of tools like that. We're also taking advantage of other products that we've introduced within the Simplify Suite, things like our interest rate hedges in the form of PFIX. Um, that allows us to access a fixed income portion of the portfolio or to put a, a heavy weight in fixed income portfolios as we're actually beginning to see the, um, the, the interest rate, the real interest rate that is available in markets become increasingly attractive. And it's one of the things I would kind of emphasize for people is if we go back three to four months ago, you would have faced a situation where the effective real yield on bonds was terrible, right? Today, we've reoriented the portfolio so that we didn't have exposure to bonds. Now we're actually increasingly exposing the portfolio to bonds and bond participation. That's the benefit of the active management component, right? We're able to look at a current environment, restructure the portfolio, and do all of that within an ETF structure that shields the tax ramifications that you would encounter if you were to try to trade those individually in anything other than a tax-advantaged account. Yeah, and you mentioned PFIX, so that's the Simplify Interest Rate Hedge ETF. Just to give listeners a flavor, I want to go through a few of the other holdings here. So there's the Simplify Aggregate Bond Plus Credit Hedge ETF, ticker AGGH, Simplify High Yield Plus Credit Hedge uh, ETF, ticker CDX, 
the Simplify Managed Futures Strategy ETF, ticker CTA. You have the, uh, the Simplify Volatility Premium ETF, ticker SVOL. There's the Simplify Risk Parity Treasury ETF, TYA. There is some gold uh, via the iShares Gold Trust. And then you, you mentioned the, uh, the, the puts and calls. And I, I just want to be clear. I, th I think you were hitting on this. But as I understand it, Simplify does view this ETF as a uh, total portfolio solution, correct? This could theoretically replace a traditional 60-40 portfolio allocation. Theoretically, that's what it's supposed to be able to do. That is what we're benchmarking it against. And again, the reason why we um, incorporate all of those products, we couldn't really launch a product like this until we were able to take advantage of that. And importantly, within kind of the dynamic of low fees or aggregate overall low fees, because we're working within a portfolio family of Simplify products, we do not have to pass through the incremental fees associated with those. So the net impact of those fees is all that you're experiencing. So, you know, you pay the fee for FIG, you're not in turn paying an additional management fee for the sub-advisory effectively that's occurring within SVOL, as you mentioned, or CTA or CDX. And so that's, a, again, an advantage in, uh, that you have within a family of funds. I couldn't do the same thing if I was putting it out to other institutions. Part of the objective behind FIG is to provide, or the macro strategy is to provide investors with access to that in a managed form without incurring the additional fees and costs associated with it. And on the note of FIG potentially uh, being a replacement for a traditional 60-40 portfolio, can you just talk a little bit more about the overall macro environment? And I know we, we could spend, you know, hours discussing this, but it's pretty clear the backdrop has changed, right? That's that's not enlightening. We have inflation at, uh, you know, 40-year highs. You have the Fed hiking rates. We have a war over in Ukraine. There's a lot going on. So can you perhaps talk about, uh, you know, that backdrop and maybe how it colors your view that the traditional 60-40 portfolio might be challenged moving forward? So, so, so absolutely. Um, one of the more interesting things, again, is how much we've seen that outlook shift in just the past five months. So you talk about a whole bunch of stuff going on. When we initially created this product and the structure behind it and our initial launch, our, our general belief was that bonds were relatively unattractive, right, and that yields were low relative to the risks of inflationary conditions that we were experiencing. As a result, we did an awful lot of substitution to not be exposed to that bond component, by and large, that worked to our advantage. However, today, we're looking at a completely different environment where the Fed has very aggressively raised rates. We're actually seeing that reflected in forward measures of inflation. So, most listeners will not have access to the indices of the tickers that would that would indicate this. But if you look at something like a one-year forward inflation break-even, in other words, the market's best expectation for that contract using TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, it's now suggesting that inflation is fully expected to retreat to 2% within a year. Um, we're creating significant tightening of financial conditions. We're creating an incredible opportunity, in my view at least, to begin to look at things like longer-duration bonds, which in real terms are suddenly offering yields that are nearly unmatched, barring extreme um, uh, crisis scenarios, you know, that are, that are effectively unmatched over the last decade, really. So we're, we're, we're looking at a 30-year bond um, on a real yield basis that's suddenly approaching 
that's actually historically a great yield. Um, and you can complain about the dynamics of, of inflation measures of CPI, et cetera, but it's very difficult to do that and then turn around simultaneously and quote CPI and say, look how high inflation is. So I just think it's, it's one of the things that's worth emphasizing is that broadly speaking, people don't realize how much bonds have begun to become attractive investments in just a very, very short period of time. The second thing that I would highlight about the macro situation is, is that same underlying feature, that assault on inflation that's being led by the Fed and is very much being reflected in forward pricing of inflation securities um, is really beginning to hit Europe and Japan. And you know, so I actually am just coming off of a macro panel um, where I and others have begun to introduce the idea that what we're actually seeing in Europe and Japan is something that is very reminiscent of an emerging market crisis, where the terms of trade have turned markedly against Europe. Right? The simplest way of thinking about Europe is they import energy from Russia and they export manufactured goods to the rest of the world, in particular China, a lot of capital goods from places like, like uh, Germany. Those terms of trade have slipped violently against them. And today they are suddenly faced with a situation where the increase in, in uh, energy prices threatens to undermine their very business model. Um, to give some idea of the leverage that's embedded in that, the historical relationship with Germany and, and Russia was somewhere around $30 billion worth of natural gas imports, supported around $2 trillion of capital goods and manufacturing exports. That system is in the process of unwinding the U.S.'s behavior in terms of hiking interest rates to target inflation is now starting to spread around the world, and Europe and Japan are being forced to respond not to deal with the underlying inflationary characteristics in their economy, but to deal with the need to protect their currency, right, to prevent a wholesale exodus um, from these regions that would be reminiscent of a 1997 Asian crisis, et cetera. I think this is a really hard thing for people to generally appreciate, and you see it in the behavior of things like the yen, which historically has been a safety currency, now weakens in response to markets going risk off. Um, you're seeing the same behavior in the euro, et cetera. This is a real change, and it's among the most complicated macro environments I've ever seen. My biggest fear is, is that having failed to anticipate the significant increase in inflation that occurred over the last 12 months, that we now see central bankers around the world failing to anticipate the recessionary conditions that are emerging on a global basis, setting up a real growth slowdown that we candidly don't know how that plays out. And that's the, the you know, if there's one thing that I would emphasize for people about recessions, we tend to treat them or we tend to talk about them as if they might be good and necessary things. They very well might be necessary, but once you enter into a recession, you really don't have control over how things work out, right? It becomes very much a dynamic of, you know, entering into a regime where you jumped out of an airplane, you're really sure your parachute is going to function. So, Michael, if I were to just summarize all that, I mean, it sounds like, is your bias more towards taking on some duration risk on the fixed income portfolio? I mean, what you just painted overseas, that doesn't, you know, give me a warm and fuzzy about being allocated to international stocks. And, and certainly if we head into a recessionary environment, you know, that's questionable for, for U.S. stocks as well. I mean, I don't want to paint with a broad bush, brush, but just high level, where's your bias in terms of where to be allocated right now? Yeah, so, so, so we have been increasing our bond allocation. And I would emphasize that even in a day like today where you saw inflation beat expectations fairly significantly, and bond prices begin to reflect an even more hawkish Fed. If I look at what's called the forward market in rates, 
it's suggesting that the Fed is actually going to be cutting more aggressively in six months than was being priced in um, even just a few days ago, right, or even yesterday, to, to put it in perspective. What the bond markets are really saying is not that the, um, Powell is by choice going to reverse this, right? So you hear a lot of discussion around the components of the Powell pivot. What the bond market is saying is, is we're going to break something, and then we'll be forced to respond. It's not going to be by choice. It's not because they're going to change their mind and suddenly decide everything is copacetic. Bond markets are reflecting the idea that a crisis is emerging, right? Um, that we're going to see something really unfortunate begin to happen. Now, one of the interesting things you mentioned is that doesn't give you a warm and fuzzy feeling about Europe, et cetera. I certainly would echo that. The other component that, you know, those who are aware of my work may be familiar with, you know, I spend an awful lot of time talking about the impact of passive investing and how that changes systems. In particular, one of the things that happens with passive investing is as long as money is going in, because of the mechanical components of it, you're essentially operating under a really simple model that says, if given cash, then you buy. If asked for cash, then you sell. And that creates conditions under which valuations could continue to rise, even into conditions that look absolutely terrible. And so markets begin to increasingly disassociate from the underlying fundamentals. I'd broadly argue that that's what we're actually experiencing, right? So we're seeing U.S. equity markets apparently shrug off. And they can, uh, to use very simple language. When I think about that dynamic and I think about international stocks, one of the great ironies is, is that even though they are cheaper, they are less exposed to these factors, right? Passive has a much greater share in the United States than it does elsewhere around the world. That higher share gain creates an exponential curve, effectively like you're running a marathon. If you press the hill first, you gain an advantage because you're heading downhill. The U.S. is in an environment in which the choices that we have made in terms of the structure of our market contribute to rising valuations. We see much less of that in the rest of the world. So, again, this is one of the perverse components of constructing this portfolio. I want to be able to tap into that, and in the same way, I want to do that in a very risk-limited way. All right. There are tremendous risks associated with it. I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to absolutely have to have you back on the podcast to drill into that particular topic. I know it's something that uh, is near and dear to your heart, the rise of passive uh, investing. I'd love to, to have a little bit of a debate there, but uh, I thought well articulated. I, I do want to uh, close with a question that I know within the ETF space, this comes up quite a bit with asset allocation ETFs. And the, the, the way that I would lay this out for you, Michael, I think uh, w one of the biggest challenges with asset allocation ETFs is getting advisors to use them. And, mm -hmm. you know, even if an advisor knows that, let's say an ETF like FIG might be a better solution, a lot of advisors don't want their clients receiving a statement that has one ETF on it, or even just a handful of ETFs, right? They feel like they need to uh, justify their value, justify their fees. Now, I personally think there are other ways an advisor uh, you know, can and should go about justifying th their value, but I'm just telling you, this is a big hurdle for asset allocation ETFs. So I I'm just curious, how will you and, uh, and Simplify try to overcome that particular uh, hurdle? Well, so I think that there's a couple of components to that. And again, I would go back to the significant changes that have occurred with the derivative rules. So historically, if you were to run a 60-40 portfolio consisting of 
you know, I'm going to buy a low-cost ETF to gain access to the U.S. equity markets, and then I'm going to buy a low-cost ETF that provides me with access to the bond market, and I'm going to package those together. There's really nothing innovative that's occurring within that. What we're able to do, because we're now taking advantage of the derivatives market, I'm able to give 150% sort of exposure, right? So I'm able to incorporate leverage into a portfolio. I'm able to incorporate a risk-limited exposure because I'm using derivatives in these structures. I would just simply argue that the traditional asset allocation frameworks have not been compelling enough and not been um, what I would broadly describe as containing idiosyncratic factors that would allow a advisor to justify why you should be doing this. The second component is I would never encourage anyone to allocate 100% of their portfolio this type of product. But one of the unique things, and again, this goes back to the active management component as well as my background, what we're really trying to do is give that core portfolio and then also incorporate some derivative trades that give us unique one-off exposures. So things that could go fantastically in our favor, a very convex payout, for example, we're trying to identify those opportunities and we reserve give or take 5% of the portfolio to take advantage of those idiosyncratic opportunities. So in many ways, it, it, it could be a, um, a product that behaves in an unexpectedly positive fashion when we have sell-offs like we're experiencing today, for example. And again, I would just argue that that's broadly within the ethos of what we're trying to accomplish at Simplify. Well, Michael, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Again, a, a real pleasure connecting. Best of luck to you on the uh, ETF, and thank you for joining me this week. Absolutely my pleasure. I look forward to coming back and talking about other topics with you. That was Michael Green, Portfolio Manager and Chief Strategist at Simplify Asset Management. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Goldman Sachs Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Goldman Sachs Asset Management's ETFs, you can visit gsam.com slash ETFs. Next week, two great guests for you. I'll be joined by Greg Basick, who is CEO of Axis Investments. We'll discuss their uh, recently launched single stock ETFs. And then I'll also be joined by Subversive Capital's Michael Auerbach, who has a uh, Metaverse ETF and several other ETFs in the hopper with the SEC, including a mental health ETF and a food security ETF. Should be interesting. Until then, have a great week, everyone. <laughs>